Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. My name is Brian Shaw, an MBA candidate here at the Wharton School. Uh, today, we are joined by Dan Eisen, who is co-founder and head of quantitative strategy at IEX, the Investors Exchange. IEX was, of course, the subject of Flash Boys, Michael Lewis's best-selling book, which talks about the growth of high-frequency trading. Um, as part of the founding team, Dan was responsible for building out the core functionality of IEX as a trading venue. And as IEX grows and evolves, he continues to develop new products and tactics that IEX can use for predatory strategies. Prior to IEX, Dan worked at RBC Capital Markets. Um, Dan, thank you again for taking the time to speak with us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Of course. So I guess uh, as a first question, you know, for those of our listeners who are perhaps not as familiar, familiar with me, can you tell us the story behind IEX? You know, what was the motivation behind creating a new trading venue? Sure. So our founding team, uh, we had nine founders. Eight of the nine of us worked at RBC before we started this company. Uh, RBC is a, a bank. We were uh, we were an electronic trading business, so we built trading strategies to serve mutual funds, hedge funds, uh, institutional trading firms like that. So we helped them navigate the stock market. We traded on their behalf. Um, at, in our position at RBC, we got to really understand how the stock market works, and we saw a bunch of problems, conflicts of interest pervasive throughout the industry. Um, and we figured that if we wanted to have as much of an impact uh, trying to fix those problems as possible, there's only so much we could do as part of RBC. We could we can have a much bigger impact uh, as an independent trading venue uh, servicing the entire brokerage community. Uh, so that's why we decided to leave. So we are a uh, institutional investor-centric stock exchange. Got it. I think I think most people first became aware of IEX probably after Michael Lewis published Flash Boys back in 2014. Um, how would you say kind of the release of the book impacted the growth of the business, if at all? I would say it was definitely a very exciting time at the company. Uh, just being put, you know, thrust into the public spotlight like that, um, it definitely had a big impact on us from a public relations perspective. Just kind of just people in the general public knowing who we were. Uh, within the trading community, I wouldn't say that it necessarily had such a big um, impact on the business. We were already live when the book came out, and our the growth of the business didn't change that much um, from the book coming out. Uh, the book definitely made us more of a kind of controversial figure in the trading community in that uh, it was very polarizing. A lot of people who already liked us, you know, the book reinforced that um, support, and a lot of people who were kind of neutral to negative on us, the book made them extremely negative because they felt that they were treated unfairly by the book. We didn't write the book. Um, we were obviously the subject of it. Um, I'd say overall, we're, we were pretty happy with, with how we were portrayed and, and kind of message, but there weren't, you know, it wasn't perfect. Um, yeah. Right. And, you know, as, as you mentioned in, in telling the story, you know, IEX, its its main argument is that it helps level the playing field, right, for investors vis-a-vis high-frequency traders. Um, However, you know, some argue that perhaps high-frequency traders create greater liquidity in the market, right, which benefits investors in, in, in the form of spreads. Um, how do you respond to those types of critics who say that maybe high-frequency trading isn't all that bad? So high-frequency trading is a very broad term that describes a pretty wide range of strategies, um, from market making to which is, you know, fully automated and uh, takes advantage of technology to other speed-based tra- strategies. 
um, that we don't consider productive. So it's, a, it's an umbrella term that covers Canvas is a wide range of things, um, many of which we consider super productive and that we encourage on IES, and, and some of which we consider to be harmful that we try to uh, either make impossible or um, discourage through other means. Um, and so, you know, when we hear that kind of high-level um, description, you know, IES is an anti-HFT exchange, uh, we don't really like it because it's a little too, um, too broad a way of putting it. I would say that IES very specifically um, wants to maintain all of the benefits that have come to the stock market as a result of its improvements in technology um, while eliminating conflicts of interest for brokers and while eliminating certain trading scenarios that we consider to be harmful. So, so it's pretty specific what we're trying to eliminate. Got it. Um, you know, one of the things that I was interested in, you know, stock exchanges are, are highly regulated businesses, right? Especially compared to, say, other fintech verticals like payments or lending. Uh, I'm curious, how did you and the team kind of navigate the regulatory hurdles, especially with such limited resources? And, uh, and were investors in the business kind of wary of backing a startup in the stock exchange space? I would say 100% yes. There's extremely high barriers to entry to starting a stock exchange. Um, because like you said, it's an extremely regulated industry. I mean, all of FinTech is, is much more regulated than the rest of technology, but um, stock exchanges specifically are extremely regulated. There's multiple regulatory bodies governing us. Um, the reason why we were able, so first of all, we raised a lot of money before we went live. We raised $25 million before we, you know, our first day of trading. So it was quite capital intensive right off the bat. Um, the technological needs that we, we had for day one um, were, were quite, quite great. Um, the reason we were able to go down this path is we really, our founding team, we had quite a lot of expert, uh, experience working in this industry. We knew all about it. We knew what those regulatory requirements were. We knew how to navigate with the regulators. We knew what we had to do because we, we had that experience. Uh, and without that, I don't think, you know, we ever could have gotten started. Right. And, and were there particular things that you did to kind of persuade your buy side investors that, that this was an investment worth making? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that was, that's kind of, so Brad, Brad Capdam, our CEO, uh, he already had relationships with pretty much the entire buy side. Every mutual fund company, you know, every major firm on the street knew who Brad was. He he worked with him when we were at RBC. Um, he had built up this reputation and this trust um, with that community. And so, you know, from the day we left RBC, we had that support. Um, so convincing them the value of the product, you know, everyone experienced these problems. They saw these conflicts of interest. People who understood um, how the markets worked, they saw that this was a real problem. Um, convincing them to invest in us, I think the way a lot of the buy side saw us as an investment was almost more of a technology spend than an investment with upside. Um, they thought of us as this is a technology solution that might solve my problems, and it's it's you know, a good idea to put money into it. Not necessarily this investment is going to have a thousand X return. Um, and so when you're approaching, you know, it's a very different community that you will be approaching than the VC community where it's all about the upside and the potential return. Uh, with this community, it was, we really want this product to exist and that's why we're going to back it. Uh, and so that, we made this through a conversation. We had a lot of challenges because we were going to, to firms that weren't used to investing in startups and, and didn't have any experience with that. Um. You know, I read recently that the New York Stock Exchange would, would be launching a competing service that they're calling NYC, NYSC American. I'm curious to know, you know, how does IEX plan to maintain its lead in this market as new entrants and imitators come into play? Yeah, so they, they actually already launched it. They launched it back in July. Um, so what they did, the, the New York Stock Exchange operates three separate distinct stock exchanges. There's the 
main one, New York Stock Exchange, uh, and then the American, the one that you're talking about, is their smallest one by far. Um, but they did. They basically just took our rule book and copied it almost verbatim, um, kind of every unique aspect of our system. For the most part, they, they just copied it. Uh, it's kind of one of the, in some ways it's good, in some ways it's frustrating. Um, the, part of the regulation is that we need to publish exactly how every aspect of our system works, all the order types, um, the architecture. And so, well, it's good from a transparency perspective in that our customers know what we're doing and we're held to a very high standard. Uh, it's kind of frustrating from a competitive perspective because our competitors can just take it and, and copy us. Um, I guess one thing that's, that's really important to point out is that the things that we're doing that are unique are all about preventing certain, certain trading situations that we consider to be harmful, preventing speed-based traders um, from using uh, special technology, super-fast technology to take advantage of slower investors. Um, the New York Stock Exchange, by embracing that model on one of their markets, um, they may kind of disrupt that scenario on that one market, but unless they do it on a broader scale, um, it's not going to have that much impact. And there's a big, um, pro like the big challenge to them embracing it on a broader scale is that they make a huge chunk of their revenue selling these technology products that enable those strategies that we consider to be harmful. So they would need to sacrifice those those revenue lines in order to do that, and it would be, you know, we don't consider it to be too likely of a threat. Um, if they did go down that path, it would be a wonderful thing for the market. It might be rough for us competitively, um, but we would welcome that competition because it would be a, a very positive change overall. Right. So what are the other kind of key projects and strategic initiatives that IEX is working on currently? Um, what would you say is the vision for IEX maybe five or ten years into the future? Well, we've only been around. We've only been live trading for four years. So uh, to think about five, ten years is, is kind of that's a little too far. I can tell you the next year um, the big thing that we'll be doing is listings. Um, it's switching companies, that public companies that are currently listed on near stock exchange and NASDAQ to, to our market. Um, the thing that I'm personally working on, so I'm, I'm only working a little bit on that initiative, um, there's a new feature I'm excited about that we're launching in January, which is a, a new fee, um, where basically we've identified uh, certain trading scenarios where we receive a disproportionate amount of this kind of predatory, aggressive trading activity. And so what we're going to do is uh, we can't, you know, one of the, the unique things about this business is that we can't pick and choose our customers. Um, there's a rule called fair access where any trading participant um, who meets a certain threshold of kind of capital requirements um, is guaranteed access to all of the exchanges. And so we can't turn them away. So we have to let them in. Um, but we can design our system in a way to kind of discourage them from running the strategies that we consider to be harmful. Uh, and so what we're going to be doing is in this very narrow situation um, where we get a disproportionate amount of what we consider to be uh, predatory order flow, we're going to charge the maximum allowable fee. Um, which is much greater than our normal fee. And the idea there is hopefully it'll get them to, to go away and, and not focus on IAX. Um, so that launches in January, so I'm pretty excited about it. We'll see how it goes. Yeah, that's exciting. Um, you know, one other question would be, you know, given the success that you've had, what advice would you have for other entrepreneurs when it comes to starting a new fintech business or, or scaling a fintech business? Uh, so I'd say the biggest thing for us going into, you know, starting a stock exchange, it's kind of a, a very... Um, you know, great endeavor, you know, very kind of, uh, it's just such a, like, a huge project. Uh, it's pretty intimidating to, to, you know, it's not like we, you know, woke up one morning and said, hey, we're going to start a stock exchange. Uh, what do we do? We, we've been in this industry for a long time across our team. We've had a huge amount of experience. Um, we really understood the industry inside and out. 
before we even started discussing, you know, the very, very first uh, versions of what this could look like. Um, having that amount of experience and knowledge about what, you know, what you're trying to do before you go into it um, was really valuable. And so starting off not just, you know, straight out of school, just like idea, finger in the air, um, but going into the industry, uh, learning all about, you know, all the different aspects of, of what it would entail, um, figuring out what are the problems that, that really do need to be solved, and then using that to guide us in, in kind of which direction we went in. Um, I think that was super, super valuable, and, and we wouldn't have had any success without, without that experience and that, that knowledge, um, and also those relationships that we built through that process. So um, just, you know, FinTech as an industry, uh, the, the problems are, are great. There's a lot of capital involved. Um, there's a lot of opportunity to have kind of very widespread impact. Um, but the, you know, there's a lot of entrenched interest and a lot of big corporations. And so without really understanding kind of how that world works and the regulatory aspects um, before you go into, into a challenge, um, it's very, very, I don't know, I, I think for us it would have been impossible to be successful. So that experience hands down is most important thing. Right. Um, well, again, thank you for, for agreeing to chat with us on the uh, FinTech podcast. And I'm um, really excited to see some of the things coming out of IEX. Thank you. Great. Thanks again. Appreciate your time.